Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you, that is okay. We have paperback Bibles <clears throat> underneath the chairs in front of you. You should be able to locate one. And you could open to page 580, uh, excuse me, 568. 568, that's where Ephesians 3 is found. Going to be looking at verses 19, excuse me. <laughs> 14 through 19, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. We're going through a sermon series here at New Life on uh, prayer, called Prayer, Taking Hold of God. And um, this morning, uh, Dan, I'm having some trouble advancing this slide for some reason. Okay, that's not really what I had in mind, but (laughs) there we go, okay. Thank you, Dan. All right, so um, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. Um, right after Mary and I got married back in 1994, we <clears throat> began attending a church in, in Indianapolis, a um, pretty large church, and just found it uh, a very formative time in our spiritual lives. Uh, I preached last week on revival. It just kind of seems like there was a bit of a revival going on at that church, certainly a revival God did in, in our own hearts at that time and uh, discovered Reformed theology there. And I really sensed a call to ministry at that church, and a big reason for that was because of the pastor at that church. And he had a very profound influence on me, and I just kind of developed a passion to do what he did. And I would say that uh, one of the big reasons why I'm a pastor today is because of the influence of this man on my life. But things didn't go so well for him in the ensuing years. He came down with an illness. That illness created a lot of complications and difficulties. He ended up parting ways with the church where we were. Um, He's not serving as a pastor today, not in any kind of vocational ministry that I know of. Uh, It's kind of a sad story. And I lost touch with him over the years. And so... You can imagine my surprise when a little while ago, it was late 2019, I pick up my phone and there is a voicemail from this pastor. And totally surprised, again, haven't talked to him in 20 years probably, I listened to the voicemail and he says, hey Bob, how are you? Just wanted to get in touch with you and see how you're doing. And I want you to know that I pray for you every morning. I was just overwhelmed. I mean, I didn't really know this guy even that well. It was a pretty large church, and so I didn't have really a a very strong personal relationship with him, and that that he would be mindful of me after all these years and would call and tell me that he was praying for me um, was very encouraging. I was very blessed. And I'm guessing that um, this guy probably has felt over the years recently like he's been a little bit set aside, you know, in ministry, probably feeling like... um, Maybe his effectiveness for the kingdom of God has come to an end. Certainly he doesn't have the influence that he used to have. Perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps he's just feeling like, what can I do for my Lord? Maybe I'm useless. Maybe God's done with me. 
Quite to the contrary. God used him in a great way in my life by reaching out to me and telling me that he's praying for me. Friends, maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you feel like, I, I, you know, I don't really have much to contribute. I don't have a lot to offer. My effectiveness in the kingdom is exhausted and it might not have ever begun. But if you want to have influence on people's lives, if you want to use, be used by God in a powerful way, devote yourself, friends, to praying for others, interceding on their behalf. It has been said that the highest form of respect and care that you can give to another person is to pray for them. You can serve people on your feet, you can serve people with your hands, but the greatest way, the most profound way you can serve people is on your knees, praying for them. Do you want to be used at the kingdom? Devote yourself to praying for others, and that's what we're going to be talking about here <coughs> this morning, praying for others. Um, sometimes this is called supplication, if you want to use a, a, a big theological word to describe this, or intercessory prayer, it is sometimes referred to. And um, we're going to be looking here at a prayer from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul has written many books in the New Testament, and here in the book of Ephesians, we have um, one of his prayers that's written down for us so we can see exactly how it is he prays. We can see um, how he prays, we can see to whom he is praying, and we can see for what he prays. And those are the three things we're going to be looking at. Uh, today. So if you have that passage, please stand. If you're able to stand, I'm going to read Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. Um, <clears throat> again, the Apostle Paul, this is a supremely gifted man, a, a, a successful church planner responsible for starting all sorts of new congregations, uh, a, a very skilled theologian, again, having written so much of the New Testament, a powerful preacher, all of these things can be said about Paul, but one thing I don't want you to miss is that Paul was a man of prayer. And you get that in his letters, and we get that right here. Ephesians 3, 14. Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ <clears throat> may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, we call on you through the work of your Son, and ask for your Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of your word now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so these three things we're going to be looking at today. How does Paul pray? To whom does he pray? And for what does he pray? So first of all, how does Paul pray? And by that I mean how, in a very practical way, how does he pray? That is, like how, how does he use his body? What does he do with his body when he prays? Um, you know, because we think of prayer very often as a very spiritual activity, and of course it, it is. But uh, you might recall from the book of Genesis, which we were going through earlier, that God created us not as ghosts or disembodied spirits floating through the air. God created us as souls in physical bodies. We are embodied creatures. 
God gave us physical bodies for a reason. He values our bodies. Our bodies are important, and our bodies actually affect the way we pray. And so look what Paul says at the very beginning, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So how does Paul pray? He prays on his knees. He gets down in reverence and humility before God. He assumes a certain physical posture before God. That's important to him. It's not just a spiritual thing for him. It's a bodily thing as well. I grew up in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, and every single Sunday there we did what we do here, which is we set aside time for confession of sin and then hearing the gospel, as Pastor Brian led us through a moment ago. But in the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, um, when we got to confession, there was a kneeler in the pew right in front of us. And so we would all pull out that kneeler, and it had this nice kind of velvet, soft little covering, and we could all kneel together as a congregation and confess our sins. And I tell you, that's kind of a powerful sight to look across a whole congregation and see them kneeling before God. And I got to say, I miss that. I think that's a healthy exercise, kneeling before God. I wonder if we might do that here some Sunday morning. We could all kneel and confess our sins together. There are a number of ways described for us in the scriptures about how we can use our body when we pray. There's not just one way. There are some descriptions in the Bible of people just lying prostrate. They're just lying right down on their face. Have you ever prayed that way? Just on the ground, flat with your face in the ground. (laughs) That's a biblical way to pray. But it's not the only biblical way to pray. There are examples in the Bible of people standing when they pray. Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, it says there, standing while they call on God. But, but kneeling is a very common way for people to pray. Psalm 95 says this, let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. Let us kneel before him. First Kings 8, Solomon's prayer for the temple that just got dedicated and then at the end of the prayer it says, he knelt with his hands outstretched to heavens, to the heavens. So it's not just his kneeling, but what he did with his hands while he prayed. It's perfectly appropriate to raise up our hands as we pray. In Luke 22, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus praying to the Father as he's getting ready to go to the cross, and it says that Jesus knelt down and prayed. So my suggestion to you, very practically and very obviously, friends, is when you pray, and when you pray for others, kneel. Go in your room, shut the door, and kneel down. If you're able, maybe not all of us are able, um, it's easier to kneel on carpet than it is on hardwood floor, I'll tell you that. So you can find maybe an easier way to do it, but there is something humbling about that act. There's just something that happens to your heart when you're on your knees. It's a humbling act, and humility is a proper attitude to bring before the throne of grace, the creator of the universe, wouldn't you agree? To come before him humbly, kneeling, enhances that humility. So there are other bodily considerations we can think of as we think about how to pray. Um, I've mentioned from time to time in this series how easy it is just to get kind of sleepy and let our mind drift when we pray. Sometimes we fall asleep when we pray. Well, here's one way to avoid that. Take care of your body. (laughs) Um, Get a good night's rest and eat well and exercise well. That will contribute to giving you an alert mind. You'll be able to pray more effectively if you take care of your body. 
There's a connection between our bodies and our souls. Uh, I would suggest also vocalizing your prayers. When you pray, just speak them out loud wherever you happen to be. Let your ears hear your own voice pray. That's a healthy exercise. It also helps you choose your words a little more carefully than just allowing your mind to drift. Speak out your prayers. Um, A question that sometimes people ask is, uh, do we have to close our eyes when we pray? And for many people, that seems to be a very obvious question. Well, of course, we always close our eyes to pray. But do you have to close your eyes to pray? Uh, it, It can be helpful to avoid distractions when you close your eyes to pray. But friends, do you know there is no biblical command to close your eyes when you pray? And as far as I know, there's not even a biblical example, a biblical precedent set for closing your eyes when you pray. There's nothing wrong with closing your eyes when you pray, but there's certainly nothing necessarily holy or spiritual or biblical about that. (laughs) I was talking to somebody after the first service who said, yeah, you know, we used to see people who didn't close their eyes and just think they were heretics (laughs) when they prayed. (laughs) You know, this is a real challenge on making sure that the way we do things are always in accord with the Bible. Sometimes we just get these assumptions about what the Bible says, and then we find out, actually, the Bible doesn't say that at all. And the Bible gives no direction about what we do with our eyes, although I will share with you this. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it does say when he prayed, he lifted his eyes to heaven. That would suggest that not only were his eyes not closed, they were open, and he was looking to his Father as he prayed. Another suggestion for use of your body, walking while you pray, Um, I I do that sometimes if I'm really tired and I just know it's not going to help me on my knees with my eyes closed. I mean, I'll I'll walk and, you know, that introduces other distractions that can bring some problems, but it's certainly an appropriate thing to do. Something about walking, just kind of get your mind thinking in a particular way, uh, an appropriate way to pray. So how does Paul pray? Gets on his knees and the Holy Spirit in his wisdom gives us that example in this passage. Well, let's go on to the next thing. Second point is this, to whom does Paul pray? To whom? Who is God speaking to? Uh, Lots of people pray, you know, friends. Lots of people pray. I mentioned a few sermons ago that even atheists sometimes pray. There's a certain number of atheists who admit they call out to some supreme being sometime. Uh, But the fact is, lots of people pray. Uh, group of Harvard scholars did a study on prayer and and their description was this, wherever you find humans, you find humans praying. In whatever part of the world and whatever time period. And even when prayer becomes something under persecution, they tend to go underground and continue their praying. There's something that won't keep people from praying. Other studies have described prayer as a global experience, even in the most remote, faraway tribes and cultures. You find people praying. It's a common human experience in primitive times and in more advanced, modernized times. People pray. They have that inclination to call out to a supreme being. But the question, friends, is this. If you pray, to whom are you praying? Who is the God you're calling out to? Do you know? Do you know what he's like? Do you know who he is? It's not enough just to say I'm calling out to God because lots of people say they call out to God and there are a lot of false gods out there. Question is, are you 
calling out to the real God, the true God, the God who actually exists. And so we see this here in Paul's letter. If you look back to the text, we get some information about the, the God that he is calling out to, the God he's praying to. So verse 14, he bows his knees before the Father, it says. So he's calling God Father. But then look in verse 16, and you'll see that he talks about the riches of his glory and that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit. So now there's a reference to the spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. And then verse 17, this is so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So we have three different names used to describe this God, Father, Spirit, Christ. But if you go forward to chapter four, verses five and six, same Paul, this is the same guy who wrote verses 14 to 19, and he talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. So there's one God, and yet he is a God who goes by three different names, Father, Spirit, Christ. This is the Trinity. This is the Holy Spirit in the scriptures presenting to us the nature of God as a triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the one true God. Other conceptions of God are, are false, but here in the scriptures we get the one true God that Paul is addressing. So let's think about these three persons um, because I really believe your prayer life can be enhanced and enriched if you address God as a trinity and think about who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for instance, when you pray to God, if you're a Christian, the Christian way of praying is to pray to God the Father. We call God a Father. Again, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father. Uh, verse 15 goes on to say it's the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I mean, we're talking about an almighty, powerful, sovereign God here. Every single family comes under his providence and his power. Every family on the earth. That's a mighty God, and yet it is a mighty God who Paul addresses as a Father. That's a personal expression. That's an expression of, of intimacy, relationship. We speak to God as one who cares for us. We speak to him as sons and daughters and children who trust him and know he wants to give us good things and care for us. That's the way Christians pray. We're not praying to some inanimate force out in the universe somewhere. We're not praying to just some angry judge up there. We're not praying to um, some absentee landlord who created everything and now has disappeared into outer space somewhere. No, we're praying to a God who presents himself to us as a father. That's unique to Christianity. There's no other religion that calls upon God as father. There's a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin who told this story. He said he was watching this father and son watch, walk down the street once and all of a sudden the son kind of just jumped up into the father's hands and the father kind of scooped him up and gave him a kiss and hugged him and told him he loved him and then set him back down. And Thomas Goodwin observed that and, and he said, you know, it's not like the son became a son when he jumped up into the father's hands the son was a son to the father. The father was a father to the son while they were walking. But there was a renewed, deeper intimacy of relationship 
when that son jumped up in the father's hands. There was a closeness there that the son experienced. And friends, when you pray to God as father, it's like you're jumping up into your father's arms. You're moving close to him. You're calling out to him to receive you and to care for you and to love you. So when you pray, Christian, keep in mind, you're praying to a father, a loving father. But secondly, we see that we are praying um, through God the Son. We're praying to God the Father, but we're praying through God the Son. So Christ is mentioned here in the passage. That's, that's the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Friends, it's very important to understand that your prayers offered up to whatever your conception of God is, they go nowhere apart from the mediation of Jesus Christ. There's no way to get God's attention apart from trusting in what Jesus has done. If you don't pray to God through Jesus, you're praying to a God who is simply angry at you. It's the work of Jesus that opens up the way. There's no other way to speak to God. There's no other way to know that you have a listening ear with him. It's kind of like writing a check to a bank but not signing it. That bank is going to reject that check. It hasn't been authorized, and your prayers need to be authenticated, authorized by the blood of Jesus in order to know that you're heard. This is what the writer to the Hebrews tells us. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places to move close to God by the blood of Jesus. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is why it's it's so important, friends, for us when we pray to, to say, in the name of Jesus. I mean, that's not like abracadabra kind of magical language. When you pray and then say, in Jesus' name, What you're saying is, I'm praying in the confidence of knowing that because of what Jesus has done, my prayers are heard. And God is going to respond, and he's going to take these prayers, and he's going to use them. But you know what? Here's how often we pray, I think. I know it's true for me. Sometimes I think, you know, I was pretty good this past week. I read my Bible multiple times. I didn't lose my temper. I put a little extra money in the plate at church. And so now I'm going to pray, and boy, God's got to hear me now. And he's got to respond and, and give me what I want. If you pray that way, if you pray in that mindset, you might as well conclude your prayers by saying, in my name I pray, amen. Because that's what you're doing. You're praying in your name. You're trying to get God's attention based on what you're doing. It won't work. You're not good enough, friends, to impress God in that way. Only Jesus and his work is good enough. So we come to the Father through Jesus and acknowledge that by saying, in Jesus' name. The last thing we see here is that our prayers are empowered by God the Spirit. Empowered by God the Spirit. If God wasn't a father, he'd have no interest in us. If God didn't send his son, he wouldn't be able to hear our prayers. And if God didn't send his Holy Spirit, you would have no desire to pray and you wouldn't even know what to pray. But the Spirit comes and works in our hearts, gives us an inclination to pray. When you feel that conviction of sin, "Mm, I think I offended God here. That's the Holy Spirit. 
He's moving you now to confess your sins and look to Jesus for forgiveness. When you have confidence when you approach God, you know that he's gonna hear you because of Jesus. You know what gives you that confidence and that assurance? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit works in your heart and moves you to pray. When you become overwhelmed with compassion for others and you feel this inclination to intercede on behalf of others, your heart goes out to them. You know they're struggling. They're having a hard time. You don't know what to do, but you want to pray for them. Who gives you that heart? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit works in your heart, empowers you to pray. And friends, when you don't even know what to say, and sometimes that's the truth, isn't it? We're so troubled, we're so grieved, we're so perplexed, we're so hopeless. We know we ought to pray, but we don't know what to say. And here's what Paul says. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. Like the spirit comes and takes over and takes the achiness of your heart and brings them to the Father. You don't know what to say, but the spirit does. So think of that, friends, when you pray. You're not praying to just this vague God. You're praying to the Father. You're praying through the work of the Son. And you're praying because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Lastly, Now, for what does Paul pray? (laughs) For what does Paul pray? So, I know we've gotten a little bit off topic maybe, but remember we're (laughs) thinking here about praying for others and specifically what Paul has in mind here is praying for other Christians. Um, We're called to pray for unbelievers and pray for the world and we could talk about that, but that's not what's in view in this passage. Paul is praying for Christians in the city of Ephesus. He's praying for brothers and sisters. So he gives us instruction here about how we should pray, how you and I should pray for one another as a congregation. Here are the things that Paul tells us we should be praying for. First of all, strength. Strength. Look at verse 16. Paul is praying that according to the riches of God's glory, he says, that through that as a source he may grant you to be strengthened with power. He wants you to be strong. Now, very often when we think of the word strong, we think of physical strength. We, we want to be good athletes, we want to be, build our muscles, or we want to be strong of mind. We want to be sharp and alert, and those things are good, and those things should be pursued. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. He's not talking about physical strength. Go on, verse 16 that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He's praying for internal strength, spiritual strength, strength of soul. He wants you to grow inside in a way that might not even be visible to others. He's not so interested about physical strength here. It's spiritual strength that he wants for the people of Ephesus. And that's what he wants us to pray for one another for. The inner being, what's going on in our hearts, he goes on in 2 Corinthians, he says this, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Though our body is wasting away, God is present by his spirit inside us in our inner being, building us up, making us strong. Friends, here's the sobering truth. Your body is gonna get weaker and weaker as you get older and older. And some of us know that better than others. 
Uh, there are young people here who can't imagine how that will ever happen, but it will. Your body will get weaker, your outer self will waste away. And one day you're gonna be on your deathbed and your body is gonna be prepared to just give up. And the question is, when you're physically weak, will you be spiritually strong? That's what Paul wants for his people. To be spiritually strong, to be able to say, I'm about to meet my maker and I am ready. Man, that's strength. To be able to look at death in the face and laugh at it, that's strength. That's inner strength. That's what Paul wants for his people. And that's how we should be praying for one another. Strengthen our inner being. Pray that we have the perseverance to the end. Pray that we would fix our eyes on Jesus. Pray that we would not lose hope in a world that is constantly attacking our faith and challenging us and calling us to go astray. It takes strength to run the race to the end. And it's a strength that comes by the Spirit of God and we should be praying for one another for that. Strength. Second thing he prays for is love. Love. This is what he wants. As he's praying for others, he wants the church to be filled with love. Look at the uh, end of verse 16. Um, Excuse me, no, verse 17. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Paul wants Christ to dwell in our hearts. The, the word for dwell there, there's one word that can mean kind of like a temporary habitation, like a stranger just kind of coming through and visiting. That's one Greek word that could have been used, but that's not the word used here. This word for dwell means to take up permanent residence. It means to settle down. And what Paul is saying is, I want Christ to settle down. I want him to make a home of your heart. You know, it's like when you buy a house maybe and it's, it's a wreck and, and it needs so much work and you move in and you get to work and you get the carpet different and you paint the walls and you throw out the trash and you, over the period of time, you renovate it and you make it a beautiful place. That's what Jesus is doing in your heart. It, it takes time. He's dwelling there. He's renovating your heart and that's what Paul is praying for because it's gonna result in, going back to verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. If Christ is living in your heart, the outgrowth of that is that your heart is gonna be made of a soil from which springs loving acts toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. From bad soil comes a sick plant. But if the soil of your heart is love, from that loving heart you will love one another well. And this is what Paul is praying for. God, please help them to love one another. Let them be rooted and grounded in love. This is the way Amy Carmichael describes love. She says, love is tenderness and judgment. The habit of thinking the best of one another. Unwillingness to believe evil about one another. But if it turns out that it's true, grief if we're forced to do so. We're not happy when we hear of evil reports of other people. If it's true, we're grieved. Eagerness to believe good. Joy over one recovered from any slip or fall. We're not rejoicing in their downfall. Unselfish gladness in another's 
joy. He's not resenting that, but rejoicing with them. Sorrow in another, sorrow coming along and shedding tears with them. Readiness to do anything to help another entirely irrespective of self. All this and much more is included in that wonderful word, love. Can we do that as a church? Pray for one another, to love one another that way? That's what Paul wanted for Ephesus. That's what I want for new life. And then lastly, knowledge. <clears throat> he also prays for knowledge. And here it's not a, a love of, uh, it's not our love for others here that Paul's talking about. It's, it's God's love for us. Look at verse 18. He says, here's what I want for the saints in Ephesus, that they may have strength to comprehend. That's a, that's a knowledge term. I want them to, to understand with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth. That is, what Paul wants is for the people to understand the love of God in Christ, how broad it is reaching to all kinds of people, how long it is starting from eternity past and going to eternity future, how high it is that it can exalt us into the heavens, and how deep it is that it can penetrate even the hardest of hearts. So Paul says, give them an understanding, help them to know that, to comprehend it. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Help them to know how much they're loved. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's praying. The assumption is that the saints in Ephesus don't know how much they're loved. And you know what? You don't know how much you're loved. And I don't know how much I'm loved. It's a love that surpasses knowledge, it says. It's bigger than we can comprehend. We can get a glimpse of it. We know what the scripture says, that it's not that we loved us, but that God, it's not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. That's the love of God. But still, it's so great and vast that it surpasses our knowledge. You don't know how much God loves you. However much you think God loves you, I guarantee you he loves you even more. And what Paul wants is for his people to, to grasp it, to understand it, to know more about that. I am convinced, friends, that what will sustain you and me through our disappointments and trials and setbacks and sorrows is not a removal of the problem, not a removal of the trial, but a knowledge of how much you're loved by God. That's the sustaining power and strength we all need to persevere to the end and to walk through this difficult and hard life. So, that's what Paul is praying for. And that's how we can pray for one another. Pray that we would be strong in our inner being. Pray that we would love one another. And pray that we would have a knowledge of how much we're loved by God in Christ. Where do you start, friends? Maybe you're not used to praying for, for others. If you're looking for a place to start, start with your family. Husbands, pray for your wives. Wives, pray for your husbands. Parents, pray for your children. Children, pray for your parents. Brothers, pray for your sisters. Sisters, pray for your brothers. Pray these things. Ask God to give them strength in their inner being. Ask them Ask God to give them a love for one another. Ask God to give them an understanding of the surpassing knowledge of Christ's love. Then go on and pray for your church. 
Intercede on behalf of those in your life groups or those in your Bible study, those who are in your, your group, those who are closest to you in the church. Pray for them. It would be hard to pray for every individual in the church. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. We need these things as well. The leaders of your church need to grow in strength and love and knowledge as well. Will you commit yourself to praying for your brothers and sisters here at New Life? As I was reflecting on how excited I was to hear from my pastor, uh, you know, just so overwhelmed, wow. This guy came and prayed for me. I was just so blessed by that. And then I realized, you know what? There's somebody a whole lot greater who's praying for me and someone a whole lot greater who's praying for you and it's Jesus Christ. Do you know that this is what Jesus does? According to Hebrews 7, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus practices intercessory prayer on your behalf and on my behalf. And that's the motivation that we should have to pray for one another. As we're about to sing, here it is. The motivation to pray. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me and for you. And so let's pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Um, Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for instructing us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And you know what? I forgot first service to pray the Lord's Prayer. I've been trying to do that every sermon in this series. So let's do that before we sing. Stand, please. Let's pray this together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.